As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And from London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As France's presidential election approaches, Marine Le Pen of the right-wing national rally is climbing in the polls. We meet with members of the party to discuss its seemingly successful bid to soften its extremist image and draw in young voters. And President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey doesn't like the English-language puns and jokes commonly made with his country's name, so he's trying to give it a new one. Problem is, you can't make people give up linguistic habits cold turkey. First up, though. The images have been haunting. Corpses, some with hands and feet tied, litter the streets of Bucha. Found in the wake of Russia's retreat, the slaughter of civilians has prompted outrage around the world. Today, NATO members are meeting in Brussels to decide how best to help Ukraine. As talks enter their second day, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kubela, said he had a very simple mandate. It's very simple. It has only three items on it. It's weapons, weapons, and weapons. We are confident that the best way to help Ukraine now is to provide it with all necessary to contain Putin and to defeat Russian army in Ukraine so that the war does not spill over further. The stark realities of war described in plain terms on the steps of NATO's headquarters. I think the deal that Ukraine is offering is fair. You give us weapons, we sacrifice our lives, and the war is contained in Ukraine. This is it. On Wednesday, President Biden announced a fresh wave of sanctions. The EU may soon do the same, perhaps banning Russian coal imports. Russian forces, meanwhile, are stretched thin and demoralized as they pull back from Kiev. But while the capital welcomes the respite, Russian forces are gathering in the east. We have seen no indication that uh, President Putin has uh, changed his ambition to control uh, the whole of Ukraine uh, and also to rewrite uh, the international order. So we need to be prepared for a long uh, haul. We need As to... the war moves into a new phase, will Ukraine be able to withstand a concentrated Russian attack? A week ago, there were Russian forces sitting in the suburbs of Kiev. They have now pretty much all gone. They've retreated over the border to Belarus and to Russia. And what our correspondents in Kiev are telling me is that the city is beginning to return to normal. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. There haven't been shots, shells, missiles heard in the city since the end of March. The mayor of the city says that civilians should return at the end of the week, but there are some coming back now. And non-essential shops are opening. So the Ukrainians have pretty much won the battle for Kiev, but they haven't yet won the war. There's a lot still to come. 
And so where is Russia focusing its efforts now? The troops that have left the area around Kiev, where will they be redeployed? The focus is Donbass, which is this province in eastern Ukraine. What we're seeing is that it's pulled back not just the forces that were in northern Ukraine heading for Kiev, but also some of the other ones around the northeastern city of Sumy. And it's going to consolidate its efforts. The idea is, John, that by focusing its efforts on fewer places, it can concentrate its forces more effectively. On paper, that seems a plausible strategy, but you've been on the show before. You've detailed Russian military losses. Do they have enough manpower, do you think, to pull that off? It's looking really difficult. Their forces are completely spent, John. So if you look at their initial invasion force of perhaps 120, 125 battalion tactical groups, these are fighting formations of perhaps a thousand or so people each, about 29 of those have been chewed up. They can't be used. They're not effective. They've got to be replenished. They've got to be rested. And psychologically, this is a force that has been thrown at Kiev. It's been repelled. It's probably pretty demoralized. Even if they can rest it and replenish it, it's going to take about a month or so to move that to Western Russia to attack Donbass. And beyond that, there just isn't much left in the tank. Russia committed three quarters of its available battalion tactical groups to this war at the beginning. There just really isn't much of a reserve left. But they are looking for reinforcements now. Where are they looking? Pretty much anywhere they can find them. They're scraping together forces from Kaliningrad, which is this little exclave wedged next to Poland, from Georgia. They're throwing in mercenaries. And Ukraine's armed forces say that the Russians are also trying to mobilize former soldiers from southern Russia around the Caucasus and the Perm region in the Urals with the promise of war booty, basically. But then there are conscripts as well. So on April 1st, Russia announced its annual draft of men aged 18 to 27. They're hoping to conscript around 134,000 men for about a year. By law, they can't be sent to Ukraine. In practice, they might be. Some of last year's batch were sent into Ukraine for the invasion. But if you wanted to send tens of thousands of these conscripts as cannon fodder, you wouldn't be able to do it realistically unless you declared a full-scale war. And so far, Vladimir Putin has been unwilling to do that. He has said that this isn't a war, it's a special military operation. So in other words, he has to choose between a full-scale mobilization and struggling to cobble together the men he needs to mount this serious attack on Donbass. And so with Russian forces demoralized, spread thin, this seems to be a real window of opportunity for Ukraine. What do you think they can do now? I think it absolutely is a window of opportunity. Now, they can't just move all their forces out of the Kiev region. As long as you have some Russian troops left in Belarus, they've got to screen the capital. They've got to defend their supply lines coming from Poland, coming from Romania, carrying all of this weaponry from the West. But they should be able to shift some units to the east. And in theory, they can move stuff within Ukraine more quickly than the Russians can move stuff slowly out of Belarus, back down south to Western Russia. So they should be able to counterattack quite effectively over the coming weeks. They probably have enough manpower. They may have sustained losses of equipment, but this stuff is pouring in. We've just learned in the past few days that the Czech Republic is giving them tanks. They're giving them Soviet-made T-72s. Even Australia is sending armored fighting vehicles. And on Tuesday, America said it would send another $100 million worth of anti-tank systems on top of the billion dollars plus of stuff it is already sent. So 
There are things that it may still be short of, stuff like Soviet-era artillery ammunition. This stuff gets chewed up very fast, and there may not be huge amounts of it in NATO stockpiles. But we are now seeing Ukraine look to exploit what it sees as this opportune moment to take back some of the land that it lost in the past month. So Ukraine is receiving shipments of arms. Russia is about to resupply its manpower. This sounds like a recipe for a war of attrition. Is that what you expect is developing now? I think that's exactly what's happening. Russia's aim was to envelop Ukrainian forces in Donbass and attack them from the rear. It's looking like that's going to be impossible now. If it tried to do that, it would risk exposing its own flanks because the Ukrainians could attack it from the north, from Kiev and other directions. So Michael Kaufman, who's an expert at CNA, an American think tank, what he told me is that he thinks Russian strategy is devolving into a kind of frontal assault, a war of attrition to wear down the Ukrainians in the Donbass, not through fancy maneuver tactics, just by squeezing them out of the Donbass by sheer bloody attrition. And I think that that is the kind of fight we're about to see over the next few weeks. What do you think of that strategy? I mean, initially, Russia seemed quite confident of a quick victory in Ukraine. They were wrong. Now they think they can basically wear Ukrainian forces in the Donbass down. Do you think they are wrong about that as well? The gamble, John, is that they can wear down the Ukrainian army quicker than the Ukrainians can stay militarily solvent with Western arms and manpower. But that's a pretty big gamble, right? The Russians have some advantages. They have shorter supply lines than they did when they were trying to attack on five different fronts. They have perhaps more advantageous weather coming in. As as spring advances, there'll be a bit less mud. They probably have stronger air power in Donbass than they did around Kiev. And the Ukrainians have probably slightly weaker air defenses. But for all of that, I still think they have some problems. I was told just yesterday by a Western official that they're still seeing Russian tanks move single file down these roads and run into problems when they get ambushed or attacked by Ukrainian resistance. These were things we were seeing in the very first days of the campaign, and the Russians seem to be still suffering from these basic tactical problems. So I think that this gamble of wearing down the Ukrainians can go very badly for the Russians. If the West has the tenacity, if it has the stomach, I suppose, to continually resupply the Ukrainians, to give them what they need, I think that attrition could favor the Ukrainians. So we really are in for a long fight. And I don't think it is necessarily one that favors the Kremlin. Shashank, that was illuminating as ever. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, John. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise, where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The first round of France's presidential election is three days away, and one poll after another suggests the same thing. Marine Le Pen of the National Rally will give the incumbent Emmanuel Macron a serious challenge, something the president nodded to at his first and so far only campaign rally on Saturday. Regardez! Du Brexit à temps d'élection! 
ce qui paraissait improbable et qui a pu advenir. The fact that Ms. Le Pen is faring so well is down in part to a long rehabilitation of the party, distanced somewhat from its founder, her father, Jean-Marie. In 1972, he co-founded what was then called the National Front, a party that was staunchly, viciously, unapologetically far-right. National Front leader Jean-Marie Le Pen thunders against what he calls the government's incapacity to halt the invasion of France by foreigners who take work from Frenchmen and fill the hospitals and prisons. Nearly 40 years later, in 2011, Marine was elected to lead the party. Marine Le Pen is elected president du Front National. The idea then and since was to soften the party's message, to clean up its image. Her father is now out of the party altogether, and since 2018 has its new name. And in this campaign, Ms. Le Pen has been comparatively quiet on immigration. That's partly because the slate of candidates has its magnet for the extreme right, Eric Zemmour. So now Ms. Le Pen can claim to be less extreme, to be more focused on the kinds of kitchen table concerns that she says Emmanuel Macron has left unaddressed. Monsieur Cazeneuve, Emmanuel Macron était ministre de l'économie. C'est pas plus senti tenu de ses promesses qu'il ne se sent tenu aujourd'hui. Les Français n'en peuvent plus de ce mépris. In this sixth installment of our French election series, we're going to look at how she has ended up as Mr. Macron's greatest threat and what that means for a storied party that has very much come in from the fringes of the country's politics. Last week, we looked at the role of Islam in the election and went to the little town of Fréjus, where Ms. Le Pen launched her campaign last year. We told you how we spoke with Frank Giletti, who's a party official in the region. We spoke about the role that identity and immigration are playing in the campaign and about the party's far-right image. We are not from left or from right. We are for the French. And also it is the main idea of this campaign. We are not right, we are not far right, we are not left. Maybe there is a good thing from the left, and why not? We work for the French, or the French. He said the party's stance on immigration was unchanged, but he said Mr. Zemmour's campaign focuses exclusively on it. Ms. Le Pen, he said, had a more complete program, fixing the failures of the country's centrist parties. They used to have the, the poor, the centrism. They used to be elected, and people notice that nothing changed. There is still unemployment, there is still insecurity, there is still immigration. They pay a lot of tax, more and more tax. They feel less free than before, not happy, and they don't believe in this politics. That's why maybe some people want to change and want to try a party who doesn't have responsibility before. There's another focus that's playing a big role too, courting the youth vote. How many French people, young French people, live in London? 300,000, maybe more. These people are good education, have a good place, but they prefer to live in London. Why? Because they don't feel free in France, because there are a lot of taxes, a lot of issues. And what she said, these people, plenty of energy, a lot of ideas, we need them in France. The national rally has been a party in flux for years, but never more so than now. 
I asked Frank where he saw it all going. Given the big changes over the past 10 years, where do you see the party in five or 10 years more? And he had a simple answer. In the Elysee? No, no. <laughs> right. The Elysee, the presidential palace. That push for the youth vote is working, especially among the rural and the less educated. Of the young people planning on voting, more are behind Ms. Le Pen than back any other candidate. To find out why, we headed west to Brignoles, where we met with Julien Chevet, the local head of Generation Nation, the party's youth wing. Bonjour. Julien. He and a few colleagues were pasting Marine Le Pen posters on a roadside electricity substation. What? The poster is in two halves, Emmanuel Macron in black and white, Marine Le Pen smiling in full color. The words say sans lui avec Marine. Julien explained. Voilà, quand on voit l'affiche sans lui avec Marine, euh, sans lui, est-ce que du coup on a vécu euh, cinq ans vraiment de, euh, de galère Without him, with Marine, he says. The past five years have been a struggle. Everything good was made bad, everything bad got worse. So why with Marine and not with the left-leaning parties that traditionally court young voters? She's the one who has the logic for us, he says. Her campaign promises to abolish income tax for the under 30s, to cut value-added tax on petrol and energy bills, and to lower motorway tolls. Julien says all that will help young people build their futures. It will make me want to work more, to flourish, to build up savings, to buy a house. In a region where a car is a necessity, cutting petrol prices and tolls really resonates with people like Julien. But what about the history, the stigma of the party? These days, young activists have to travel in groups of three because there have been attacks on other poster pasters. La caricature qu'on veut lui faire depuis depuis des années, et c'est vrai que voilà, vous nous voyez, on n'est pas on n'est pas des gens anormaux. Marine isn't the caricature people make her out to be. He tells us, we're not extremists. We just want to unite people. It would seem that the national rally is succeeding in its latest push to diversify from right-wing talking points, to claim to be a progressive party of unity. Everywhere we went, we had to press party members about her position on matters such as immigration. All they typically talked about was those pocketbook issues. But open up the party literature and the top three concerns remain the same. Uncontrolled immigration, Islamism, and the security that's under threat. Those messages are being laid out a lot more clearly by Jordan Badela, the 26-year-old acting president of the party. We met him at a press conference before a local party meeting in Marseille. Flashy event, it wasn't. Two photographers, two bodyguards, a handful of journalists. He stressed the parts of the party's platform that have seemed less a focus for Ms. Le Pen's campaign efforts. He spoke of needing to regain control. He reiterated the party's promise of priority access to employment and housing for French citizens, 
of a referendum aimed at clamping down hard on immigration. He said there would be a national outright ban on wearing the hijab, which he said is no longer a religious garment, but a tool of conquest. Victory is not an option, it's a necessity, he concluded. Emmanuel Macron will be defeated. Emmanuel Macron sera battu. That isn't as outlandish a claim as it seemed when we started this series. Our election forecast model now gives Ms. Le Pen a one in five chance of victory. Win or lose, though, with that shift in focus, with a rival further out to the extreme right, with the devotion of a fair fraction of the country's youth, Marine Le Pen and the National Rally will emerge from this campaign in a different place in France's politics. The first round of the French presidential election is on Sunday. Our series returns on Monday with a look at the results. You can find all of our coverage of the poll at economist.com slash France 2022. Anyone who's ended up with an unwelcome nickname knows how tricky they can be to get rid of. But it's not just people who get stuck with disliked monikers. Over time, place names too can become anachronistic, celebrate unpleasant history, or just be the butt of too many jokes. The latest to attempt a rebranding is Turkey, whose president decided last year that you should call his country Turkia. Turkey's decision to change its English name to Turkia came about because of the frustrations of the president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, with the bad puns that conflate uh, Turkey the country with Turkey the bird that people eat at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Lane Green writes Johnson, the Economist's column on language. Mr. Erdogan has clamped down on dissenting opinions of various things in the country that he governs, and he's now apparently convinced that his authority and power extends to the English language as well. So his government plans to register with the United Nations under the new name. So is it catching on a little closer to home yet? Well, state institutions have begun using it, but despite a fortune spent on a new publicity campaign called Hello, Turkey, Turkey is not yet catching on. Our correspondent Pyotr Zalewski was at a recent international forum in Antalya where he notes that diplomats did not at all really appear interested in using the new name consistently. They'd use it and then they'd forget and switch back. The only people apparently who really stayed on message using the new name, at least in public, were the foreigners that had been hired to work for Turkey's state propaganda news channel. Some of Mr. Erdogan's supporters are, of course, thrilled with the idea that foreigners will be forced to call Turkey by what they see as their authentic name, but critics will call this a populist gimmick by a pretty successful populist president. But there are plenty of instances of name changes in the past that are not mere populist gimmicks. Right. So a classic case is when a bit of the map goes from belonging to one state to another. 
So, for example, now uh, Westerners who were once accustomed to referring to cities called Kiev, Kharkov, and Lvov are now calling those places Kiev, Kharkiv, and Lviv. Those were not classic neutral English names. Those were the Russian place names for those cities. And after Ukraine became independent, many of its people, especially Ukrainian speakers in the country, wanted the Ukrainian versions to be used, not just there, but even when referring to them in English. Now, using those Ukrainian names really seems like a declaration that we believe Ukraine should exist because Russia is denying the sort of independence of a Ukrainian culture and nationhood. But it's not just territory changing hands that that drives these kind of name changes. Yes, it's quite often the case that countries will change the name of cities or regions for political reasons that sometimes hark back to a colonialism, for example. Uh, people who know India have seen names like Bombay and Calcutta and Madras changed to Mumbai and Kolkata and Chennai. The old capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo was Leopoldville, and that recalled you know, a terribly rapacious king of Belgium who ruled Congo like his own personal territory, King Leopold. And so when they renamed it Kinshasa, pretty much everyone had, uh, got on board and agreed that that was very much fair enough on the part of the, the people of that country. Controversial or, or not, though, I, I suppose old habits die hard. They do. There's an argument that place names exist in English as well as in their national languages. For example, we don't refer to Roma, we refer to Rome. And Italians refer to Inglaterra and Londra instead of England and London. So it's natural for place names to differ across languages. But every once in a while, a country will make it clear that they would like their English language name, like the case of the Czech Republic. The Czechs have asked that their country be called uh, Czechia rather than a Czech Republic in English. The problem is that Czechia is slightly unusual and slightly hard to pronounce for a lot of English speakers. And maybe people have just gotten used to the Czech Republic. And so the new name Czechia has yet to catch on in English. So bottom line, there is no real good way for Mr. Erdogan in Turkey or indeed anyone else to to sort of enforce this stuff. Now they can register it officially, but what people say is a different matter. And that changes only slowly. And it changes to a certain extent with politics and with fashion. So I would advise Turkey, if they were taking my advice, to try a charm offensive, which they are trying rather than a heavy handed approach. I think the widespread adoption of these Ukrainian place names shows that In these things, nobody likes to be bullied. Thanks very much for your time, Elaine. Jason, thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.